Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based pharmacotherapy to your pharmacy and medicine practice. Hello, and welcome to Game Changers Clinical Conversations. I am your host, Jeff Wall, Professor of Pharmacy Practice at Drake University. Uh, hope everything is going good for you and in your world as we're kind of turning the corner, uh, at least in the United, United States, toward fall and stuff like that, and in, in winter even. is. Uh, 2022 uh, was one of those years where I think things went slow and fast at the same time, uh, which has pretty much been the, the, the case since the beginning of the pandemic, I think. So uh, if you are a new listener, well, I'll just welcome you to the, to the podcast. We do aim to be the podcast where we try and give you the latest pharmacotherapy information that impacts your practice. Uh, if you like what you hear, please hit that like and subscribe button where you get your podcast. If you're a frequent listener, again, thank you for, for staying with us. And we hope that you continue to find us an important uh, resource for, for your practice and, and your clinical decision making. So today we're going to actually do a bit of a review. We don't have a brand new guideline or anything to talk about. We do have a paper to briefly talk about. And the, the, our, our subject today is going to be um, alcohol uh, withdrawal syndrome and kind of an update on the treatment measures for, for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And this was kind of kicked off, and this is the paper I'm going to briefly mention, uh, that came out uh, last week in JAMA that took a look, and it, it, did, re, it did get a, a lot of lay press, I think, uh, uh, looking at alcohol consumption um, and its association with death in patients, you know, basically over age 18. And so, you know, in this paper, you know, they noted that, and I think this is no surprise that that alcohol consumption is, is a leading preventable cause of death in the US. I suspect that only smoking is probably the one, the only one that really beats it. And alcohol liver diseases and uh, incidences have increased in the past decade. The, this actually just went through uh, 2019. I suspect that if you take a look at, at pandemic levels, they skyrocketed, but they note that that in the past decade, you know, alcohol and cirrhosis has, has really increased, especially in patients age 20 to 64. So they, what they wanted to do is look at the uh, mean annual number of deaths from excessive alcohol use uh, compared to relative total deaths among adults 20 to 64. And they didn't want to look by different things like, you know, gender, age group, state, and, and things along those lines. They took, it was, this is a database, a retrospective population-based cross-sectional study. They looked at the mean annual alcohol attributed deaths among U.S. residents between 2015 and 2019. And they used the uh, behavioral risk factor surveillance system uh, which is a, a voluntary survey system that, that people take and, and, and actually has quite a few numbers associated with it. And actually, they had about uh, 2 million uh, patient charts that they could basically look through. I guess charts isn't the right word, but, but you know, patient uh, uh, factors they could look through uh, that was adjusted per national capita per alcohol sales to account for underreporting. Then they used adjusted mean daily alcohol consumption prevalence estimates to apply to those uh, to kind of generate relative risks for alcohol attributed uh, mortality, basically. They also looked on blood alcohol concentrations when they could find them to assess acute partial alcohol uh, attributable deaths. Uh, their uh, main outcome, again, was alcohol attributed deaths uh, uh, as defined by the Centers of, uh, Centers of Decontrol and Prevention's alcohol-related decision impact applications. There's an actual application on the website. You can do this yourself, basically. And they got mortality data from the National Vital Statistics Center. So they basically took several gigantic databases and kind of put them together and, and, and tried to account for, for co covariates to take a look at, at, at this outcome. The results, again, they looked at 2015 to 2019. They found during that period, they found about 700,000 deaths per year among adults age 20 to 64. And the mean was, was, was higher in men than women, as you might expect. They have found that a, 
an estimated 12.9% of those, or about 90,000 per year, were attributed to excessive alcohol consumption. Uh, this percentage was higher among men, among women, as you might extend, and, and states. Uh, they also looked per state, and that ranged from 9.3% uh, of total deaths in Mississippi to 21.7% of deaths in New Mexico. And so what, what they basically found was, was, was the, a, a pretty high percentage, I think, overall of alcohol-related deaths among these among this cohort uh, when they actually kind of all balanced it out. And they, they took a look at age cutoffs. They found that basically about one in eight total deaths among U.S. adults age 20 to 64 was attributed to excessive alcohol use. And I think the sobering fact that that really got a lot of lay attention that if they broke it down to 20 to 49 years, it was one in five deaths among, among that population due to um, um, alcohol use. And, you know, again, you know, keeping in mind that the overall amount of, of deaths in this in this population is relatively low considered to older cohorts. But the bottom line is that, you know, even in this population, a significant number of deaths are associated with, with excessive alcohol use. And they, in their discussion, kind of note some of the some of the population level or, or governmental level things that they could do to perhaps uh, uh, decrease that and, you know, things along, you know, increasing taxes and, and increased uh, uh, help for patients who have alcohol use disorder, things along those lines. So again, a very sobering paper uh, that, uh, no pun intended, that uh, um, uh, basically looked at the high level of death associated with, with excessive alcohol use, especially in, in people age 20 to 49. Now, um, I would I would say that that I, my, you know, again, my N of whatever, uh, working in, in a hospital, th these numbers have skyrocketed even since then. Um, now, you know, was it always that way? Who knows? You know, but I, just again, anecdotally, I am seeing a ton of alcohol-related issues, including acute alcoholic hepatitis, cirrhosis, acute withdrawal, um, you know, uh, that have that my, our numbers, at least from on my two services at my hospital, have just absolutely skyrocketed since COVID started. I know there is some evidence to suggest that that alcohol and drug uh, use has really, really risen since the start of the pandemic, and I think that's going to be one of the one of the the uh, legacies of COVID that we're going to be having to unfortunately have to deal with for years to come. And and I think we're we're going to see a lot of uh, depression, anxiety, um, and 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 people trying to deal with with the serious mental health issues that COVID kind of generated. Um, I think with with alcohol and drugs, unfortunately. So so that's kind of the paper. Um, one of the big things, as I mentioned, that I see a lot is alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and it is life-threatening. Um, and so because of that, it, you know, because it's kind of you know, tangentially related to this paper we just discussed, we thought it would be a good idea to take a look at uh, the current thoughts as far as, as, far as uh, treatments for alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Uh, there has been some new evidence um, about some new medications to try, also some new evidence as far as the timeline of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Uh, it's something that, yeah, you really do have to take seriously because, um, you know, and I, my students always get surprised when I tell them it's kind of ironic that opioid overdoses or withdrawal don't cause uh, uh, life-threatening uh, problems. You can withdraw from opioids and you're not going to like it, but it usually isn't life-threatening. Whereas uh, withdrawal from, from GABA, nergic things like, like alcohol absolutely can be life-threatening because of, of seizures and, and DTs. So uh, as you might imagine, there's some diagnostic criteria. DSM-5 defines alcohol withdrawal as two or more distinguishing symptoms which develop within several hours to days after presenting with a significant decrease in alcohol consumption after a period of heavy drinking. And I think many of you in the audience are, are well aware of, of these symptoms, including nausea, vomiting, automatic, uh, autonomic hyperactivity, uh, insomnia, agitation, uh, anxiety, tremor, uh, you know, they're sweaty, all that sort of stuff. And then it can certainly progress to hallucinations and seizures and stuff like that. Um, interestingly, and I, I think this is, it's something that I think we forget is that you don't have to have a serum alcohol level of zero um, to, to go, start to go with a draw. If you have a very, very heavy drinker and they even just decrease the amount of alcohol they drink, they very well may go through 
withdrawal, even if you were to check a BAL and find that they're, that they're level, they do actually have some alcohol in their bloodstream. If it's significantly lower than their, than their usual amount, they will absolutely go into withdrawal as well. Uh, I won't belabor the pathophysiology too much of alcohol um, withdrawal syndrome. I think we're all kind of aware that, you know, what ends up happening is, is chronic alcohol use uh, increases GABnergic transmission and decreases uh, glutaminergic activity, which is, of course, the, the activating or, or enhancing um, uh, pathway of the brain. Um, and, you, and usually it does this through inhibition of NMDA receptors. And so, as you might imagine, chronic alcohol use then leads, leads to the downregulation of GABA and the upregulation of NADA receptors. And so, in acute withdrawal, that acute uh, shift between GABA dropping and, and uh, glutam, glutamate increasing uh, leads to uh, CNS excitation, which can lead to seizures, autonomic uh, hyperactivity, and hallucinations as well. So, now we can take a minute and talk about the timeline of alcohol withdrawal syndrome or alcohol uh, withdrawal problems. And I was always kind of taught that, you know, really, you know, you don't get into trouble with, with delirium tremens until, you know, three, four days is out. And there's actually been a change of thinking on that. Um, uh, and, and, you know, yes, while some of those patients will present that way, uncomplicated withdrawal, uh, we now know can occur as is, is, is early as six hours after the last drink, especially in very, very heavy alcohol consumers. And these, you know, these are patients who have kind of mild symptoms, again, nausea, anxiety, mild tremors, um, uh, tachycardia, hypertension, stuff like that. Kind of eight to 12 hours, again, much sooner than I was kind of previously taught is, is where you can get into problems with with alcohol hallucinosis. Again, these are patients who probably are pretty heavy drinkers at, at this stage, but again, they can have, you know, again, auditory, visual, tactile hallucinations. Uh, they can uh, be, start to become paranoid and have other delusions. Uh, as we start to get into kind of 12 to 24 hours, again, sooner than I kind of had learned, uh, alcohol withdrawal seizures can occur. They're usually generalized tonic-clonic seizures and can often occur in clusters and actually be maybe one of the causes of status epilepticus. And then alcohol withdrawal delirium, which is the life threatening part of, of, of this is, is more, again, kind of one to three days out. So again, sooner than I was kind of previously taught, uh, where you'll get, again, confusion or alteration in consciousness, severe autonomic changes, and persistent hallucinations. So, you know, I think contrary to what, to what I think a lot of, of veteran clinicians were taught, uh, you can actually get alcohol withdrawal symptoms much sooner, um, especially in heavy drinkers, than I think, you know, we were kind of taught. So that's something to kind of keep in mind. So, so how do we treat alcohol withdrawal syndrome? Well, there's the, when I first came out of school, the, the standard was to put patients on schedule tapers. So we would often use uh, Librium or Clodirize epoxide or, or Oxazepam and would start them on a high dose and slowly, slowly taper them over, over, over two to four days sort of stuff. And so, of course, as many of you know, what really kind of changed the game on that uh, was the, the, the CEWA study. And of course, CEWA stands for the revised Clinical Institute uh, Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol Scale. It's one of the most commonly used tools. Um, I, I, there's probably not a hospital in the country that doesn't have a CEWA protocol uh, for, for alcohol withdrawal. It's a 10-item scale that we all know that, that detracts the degree of some of these alcohol withdrawal symptoms um, and is used, again, commonly in, you know, again, in hospitals throughout, throughout the United States. Uh, the original CEWA study found that, that compared to a scheduled taper, uh, patients who uh, underwent this system-triggered taper, so when, when someone has a high enough CEWA score, they get uh, some treatment, uh, they found that uh, it 
um, it had an overall less benzodiazepine use and, and basically got patients got better, fatter, faster and got out of the hospital. But as I'm forever telling my, my residents and my students that, you know, CEWA has some limitations. Um, you know, the nurses will tell you that if they, especially nowadays where they're having multiple patients they have to take care of, it can be difficult to do this because you have to, yeah, it takes about five to 10 minutes to administer the CEWA score. And you're doing that every one to two hours. Again, that, that, that does add up over time. My big thing is that, is that uh, you do need to be able to talk to the patient, communicative, uh, communicative abilities that need to be intact for the questions to be answered appropriately. Um, and comorbid psychiatric systems can compound and inappropriately increase scores. Um, and so again, you know, the, we, I often see the CEWA score used exam, for example, in my ICU and patients who are intubated, well, you really can't use the CEWA score because those patients are intubated, they can't talk. And so, and it's worth noting also that the CEWA scale was never validated um, in actually even just acutely ill hospitalized patients. It was actually initially validated in a population of voluntary patients at the detoxification center. So I mean, patients who really weren't that sick. So in the last several years, um, there's been kind of a, a rec recognition of this and, you know, at wondering if, you know, would there be another more accurate scale in, in, in seriously ill patients? And so what's kind of taken the place in several hospitals? And, and I think here in town, we have a couple of hospitals as well as the PAWS, um, P-A-W-A-S-S -S rating scale. Um, and you can actually, you know, find that online pretty easily. Um, and basically, if they've consumed any alcohol within the past 30 days or the BAL is positive on admission, uh, then you can go ahead and answer them, answer about 10 questions. I won't, you know, you can certainly look this up, but I mean, basically you can ask patients if they've been intoxicated with the last 30 years, have they ever had treatment for alcohol use disorder, have they experienced blackouts, have they had seizures or DTs before, um, um, what was, was their BAL uh, greater than 200 on presentation, stuff like that. And basically they get a point for every one of those questions that's answered yes. And if you have four or more of those points, it indicates a high risk of moderate severe acute withdrawal syndrome or alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and those patients should be treated basically. So I am seeing more of the pause uh, scoring system being used more and more in hospitals, especially in, in, in severely or critically ill patients. Um, and I think that that's kind of reasonable to take a look at in your hospital too, if you want to do that. So, so how do we move on to treatment now? Um, one of the first things you have to remember and is, is to check the blood glucose and make sure that they get dextrose as well as thiamine. Um, and, and many of these patients do are hypoglycemic. Um, um, the liver isn't functioning properly and they're not eating properly. So they often end up with, with, with low sugars. And so um, giving them some dextrose makes sense. But of course, as we all know, you also have to give uh, uh, thiamine or vitamin B1 administered empirically for the prevention of Wernicke's encephalopathy. So again, you can't give uh, glucose uh, to patients uh, who are at risk of colic hepatitis or, or alcoholics because of the prevention of uh, Wernicke's encephalopathy and Korsakoff psychosis. Um, as far as the dose for thiamine, that's kind of all over the place. And, and I think every hospital kind of has its own, own set of guidelines. Um, you know, uh, traditionally, I think I, I in most hospitals that I know, we use 100 milligrams of thiamine, either IV or PO, um, um, you know, if patient can swallow uh, a daily uh, for several days after their admission to the hospital. There is some evidence to suggest that we probably under-recognize and under-treat Wernicke's encephalopathy. Um, and uh, there was an excellent paper that, that I read a few years ago called Unpeeling the Banana Bag. And uh, it's, it's a great review of, of using thiamine and folic acid in, in all these patients. And, you know, they basically noted that in that paper that Wernicke's encephalopathy is far more common than we think it is. And, you know, if you have a patient that comes in who's altered or has ataxia or anything along those lines, they very well, it may just be the alcohol, they very well might have Wernicke's. And uh, the treatment for Wernicke's is still, is still thiamine, but, but uh, it's a thiamine at far higher doses than they use for prevention. Uh, we in this hospital use 500 milligrams of IV thiamine every eight hours for a minimum of 72 hours. So again, you know, you know, in, in your world, kind of, you know, think, think about Wernicke's, not just prevention, but perhaps treatment in your patients 
patients with who come in with uh, acute alcohol intoxication. So, as you might guess, the main uh, mainstay of treatment, of course, is benzodiazepines. They've been used for for more than fifty years for for the for the uh, treatment of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. They, of course, are GABA receptors and are cross tolerant with alcohol. Um, uh, you know, again, there's some debate about is there one better benzo than another, and I've never really heard any data that suggests that. I know most clinicians like to use benzos with no active metabolites because, again, most most benzos are are cleared through the liver, and so the Lorazepam, you know, the LAT um, mnemonics, Lorazepam, Oxazepam, and Temazepam are the three uh, benzos that do not have um, uh, active metabolites. But again, you know, many people will use diazepam or chlorazepoxide. Uh, currently, as of this uh, recording, uh, there is a national shortage of intravenous um, uh, Ativan or Lorazepam. So we have we and many other hospitals have had to go to back, back to diazepam basically uh, for its use in, in alcohol with, with withdrawal syndrome. Um, the goal, of course, is to, is to you know get good control of their alcohol uh, symptoms, including autonomic activity, seizure prevention, because that's the other nice thing about benzos, of course, is that they're, they're excellent anti-seizure drugs as well. Um, you know, again, there's several studies, many of them pretty old, because you know, again, these were studies done in, in the 1970s and 80s that found that 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 uh, benzodiazepine is are effective. Again, the the CWA study and some other studies have found that in most cases, especially in patients on the floor, uh, symptom triggered a use of of a benzo seems to just give less amount and, and gets people out of the hospital quicker. Um, so total duration of treatment is significantly less for symptom triggered group. But again, that's just, it's hard to do uh, in, in some patients. Again, if they can't speak, if they can't talk to you. Now, occasionally we run into patients who, uh, you know, we're, we're just blasting them with benzos and we can't get, you know, they're still having significant symptoms or CWA scores are sky high. But I mean, even if we're not doing CWA on them, you know, they're sweaty, they're tachycardic, you know, all that other stuff. And so sometimes benzos can be prove, proven inadequate and something that's become very popular, I think, in many hospitals has been the use of, of, of barbiturates, particularly phenobarbital as an alternative treatment or an additive treatment in, in patients with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Um, I'm, you know, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a bit of a nihilist when it comes to that. I've, I've yet to see a paper that suggests that, that phenobarb is superior to benzodiazepines. Um, it, it does have some theoretic pharmacokinetic advantages because of its very, very long half-life that theoretically you might be able to just give someone a, a dose of phenobarb and, and it would kind of, kind of self-taper. So, you know, you might might be able to make the argument that in in patients with mild withdrawal that that a single dose of phenobarb you know may be enough to to, to get them out of withdrawal and it'll self taper over time so you don't have to send them home with with a, with a prescription for benzos which might be you know not used correctly or, or diverted or something along those lines so I, I can kind of see a role there for it um, but but again I you know I know that this is kind of the flavor of the month in a, in, a, in a lot of hospitals and again I'm not suggesting that that it isn't a good drug for this but but um, the biggest study I'm aware of basically was a was a prospective randomized double blind study that looked at IV phenobarb compared to IV lorazepam and basically found no difference between them. And the problem with phenobarb, of course, is that especially if you have to, if you have to use it uh, frequently or more than just one or two doses, that it's a potent cytochrome P450 inducer. So again, if they're on a lot of other medications, um, that, that might make, may cause a decrease in their levels. Um, I'm old enough to remember when phenobarb was, was a commonly used anticonvulsant, and it does have a lot of weirdo side effects, you know, a lot of you know, LFT abnormalities and skin reactions and stuff like that. So, you know, and I think the third thing is that we're kind of all over the board as far as dose. A lot of people are using 10 milligrams per kilogram, which in big patients can be quite a bit of, of benz, or quite a bit of phenobarb. Um, some are using fixed doses, and again, we don't really have a, a, a standardized dose. So again, I'm, I'm not saying that phenobarb wouldn't be a, a choice in certain patients, but I know you know several health systems. In fact, quite a few health systems have basically almost abandoned benzos in favor of, of, of phenobarb. And I, my personal feeling is, is until a paper comes out that shows there's some significant advantage to that, I'm, I'm still probably going to recommend benzos in most of my patients. So another 
other potential uh, um, uh, alternative or, or additive therapy is gabapentin. Again, gabapentin, as you might imagine, is a, is a, is a gabinergic uh, agonist. Um, there's a couple of small studies that suggest that, again, uh, using uh, gabapentin as an adjunct to benzodiazepines uh, not only lowers benzo use, but actually has uh, improvement in CWA scores and symptoms, and seems to be pretty beneficial as an adjunct. Occasionally, I'll have patients who um, have mild uh, alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and for whatever reason, my physicians don't want to send them home with a, with a benzo prescription, but we're not going to treat them inpatient. So gabapentin may, may have a role there as well. You tend to use relatively high doses in these patients because, again, uh, they've kind of revved up their, their gabinergic system and they've downregulated stuff. So you tend to have to use higher doses of gabapentin in these patients. Um, and the, the one study I'm aware of, they actually started at, at 1,800 milligrams a day. So, I mean, again, a pretty high, something I would never do in a patient who didn't have uh, acute alcohol uh, disease because you, know, you just knock them out. But, but um, it, 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 it seemed to work pretty good. Plus those high doses and probably one of the other advantages of, of, of uh, gabapentin is that there's some evidence to suggest that you can send them home on it. It actually works for, for, for alcohol use disorder in, in reducing cravings and increasing the, the uh, rate of abstinence. Uh, one study suggested that about 20% of patients uh, had abstinence, again, with higher doses of gabapentin compared to lower doses. Some other adjunctive measures, I know some hospitals are using ketamine because, of course, why not? We're using ketamine for everything else, so why not for this? There's been a couple of small studies that suggested that, again, as an adjunct, it may, it may uh, decrease the use of, of, of um a benzo use, and there was one study that suggested a decreased ICU stay. So again, you probably only use this in, in severe withdrawal in patients in the ICU. Uh, one study also did show a decreased need for mechanical ventilation. So, uh, but they're all retrospective studies. Again, uh, my hospital we don't use ketamine for 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 for, for this reason, but I think some, we need some studies to kind of take a look at that. What we are using more and more, of course, is dexmedetomidine um, uh, as an adjunctive therapy, and that the you know uh, that it's a drug that that we use commonly in the ICU in patients we need light sedation on. Uh, um, and because it doesn't decrease respirations, you can even use it in patients who aren't intubated, which is kind of nice. Um, you know, of course, uh, this all comes from the fact that, that, that uh, dexmedetomidine is essentially intravenous clonidine with some, some slight pharmacologic differences. And so it, it does a really good job to control the autonomic symptoms um, of, of, of alcohol withdrawal syndrome and, and things like that. It's always important to keep in mind that because of its mechanism of action, it does not uh, prevent seizures. So you had, it, it can only mask, or it can only mask seizures in fact. So yeah, it, yeah, you have to use benzos or phenobarb with dexmedetomidine. You can't use it by itself uh, for a treatment of alcohol withdrawal syndrome. And I've actually seen that done a few times. So that'd be yeah, something you want to really kind of keep an eye on. And then I can, you know, when all else fails, I know some people have, and there's a couple of small studies that have examined the use of baclofen, which again is another GABA agonist. I have to admit, I'm kind of nervous whenever I see baclofen used. Um, I've seen a, a number of, of significant adverse effects of baclofen. It's cleared renally, and uh, if patients get into trouble with their kidneys, it builds up very quickly and can cause profound respiratory and CNS depression. And uh, um, we did a game changer, I think a couple of years ago, where we, we took a look at, at uh, skeletal muscle relaxants and how people often confuse baclofen for, for you know, as a skeletal muscle relaxant relaxant instead of a spasticity agent. So I think it's pretty overused anyway. So again, I, I try not to ever recommend baclofen for this stuff. A recent Cochrane review also found there was insufficient evidence to make a judgment regarding it. So in my world, again, benzos, 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 I have uh, dexmedetomidine if they're in the ICU and I have occasionally used gabapentin as, as an adjunct of therapy. Again, I know many places are using phenobarb and I think that's fine, but we've not made that jump in my health system. And, and I'm, again, I'm a little bit skeptical until I see some, some super, uh, data showing superior 
superiority, which I just haven't seen. Very briefly, I do want to talk about naltrexone for alcohol use disorder. I'm trying to be much, much better about, about uh, recommending this in patients who are admitted with, with uh, acute alcoholism. Um, we did a game changer, I think, last year where we talked about uh, the Addiction Society guidelines for alcohol, for, uh, alcohol use disorder and noted that naltrexone is, is an excellent drug for this. It works really, really well to decrease cravings, decrease total numbers of drinks, and help with abstinence. And it's actually very well tolerated um, and has few side effects as long as they're not on, obviously, opioids and is relatively inexpensive as well. In fact, the only reason to really to consider not using naltrexone would be patients who have significant liver disease. So if you can catch patients early before they've really knocked out their liver, it really is a, a, a pretty good therapy to consider. And I've been trying to be better about uh, discharging patients on this, especially if they're willing to enter some sort of uh, uh, um, rehab program. I think, I think that, you know, that you kind of give them the big one, two of pharmacotherapy to help them with the cravings as well as the behavioral therapy they need. So again, I, I, I heartily recommend naltrexone and I'm trying better to, to recommend it on my patients before they get discharged. So, so that's it for this week of Game Changers, kind of a, a long one, but, but hopefully uh, the information presented will kind of help you and, and your patients as we go along. Again, thank you for listening, whether you're a new or, or a constant listener. Please, if you uh, uh, listen to us, please head over to ceimpact.com. Uh, they're the producers of, of this uh, podcast and, and really uh, help us keep the lights on. You can head over there and check out a great number of CE programs, including CE for this program for a very reasonable price. So head on over there and, and see what you can find. That's it for this week. We will see you next week. But until then, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important day is today. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening in to Game Changers each week. It's easy to get CE for today's podcasts. Just go to ceimpact.com and purchase a pharmacist subscription. The link is in the show notes.